All right, let's get into the word this morning. We are finding ourselves in Genesis chapter 18. There's a lot going on in Genesis 18, and so we're going to look just at verses 1 through 15 this morning. So open your Bible or uh, those of you who have a, an electronic device of some kind, iPad, iPhone, or something else that uh, acts like an electronic device, uh, then uh, you can navigate to your electronic Bible. Genesis 18, the topic, after Abraham and Sarah show hospitality to the Lord, he tells them that Sarah will conceive and bear a son. The title of our message, Womb Service. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we love you and thank you and praise you and a lot to rejoice about today. We uh, appreciate, Lord, uh, the fellowship of believers here and uh, the the heart of giving. And Lord, I pray that we would uh, have that heart uh, in mind as we look at the text this morning because so much of it is about showing hospitality and reaching out, Lord, to those who have need both in and out of the body of Christ. And so, uh, Lord, just continue to, to speak to us, to minister to us. Our hearts have been prepared by the worship, uh, and the Holy Spirit is here to teach us from the Word. Uh, minister and bless, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm not really uh, revealing anything you don't already know when I tell you that I can be pretty dense. A few years ago, Gino and I were in Southern California at a Pete's coffee shop, We just so happened to be talking about movies, and at the time, some new animated feature written and directed by Tim Burton was about to be released. As we were talking about it, a guy walked in, he overheard us, and casually mentioned something about the film, something along the lines of having just seen a final pre-release copy or something like that. We acknowledged him, exchanged a comment or two, but I didn't give it much thought. Should have been a clue when the barista called him Tim. But not to me. Uh, Only later did I think that might have been Tim Burton. And then I found a picture of him and yeah, it was him. Uh, And so I missed my chance to be in an animated movie by Tim Burton, I guess. But anyway, he wasn't trying to hide his identity so much as I just didn't recognize him. In our text this morning, uh, three men suddenly appear in the vicinity of Abraham's tent. It's pretty clear that Abraham doesn't immediately recognize them. They are strangers to whom he shows incredible hospitality. Later in the story, uh, one of the men will reveal himself to Abraham and Sarah as the Lord. A little later still, you find out the other two men were really powerful angels who go on to deliver Lot before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. The Lord hid himself from Abraham and then he showed himself to Abraham and Sarah. I hope to be able to show you that Jesus loves to hide and then show himself. Why does he do it? Well, there's lots of reasons why he might hide and then show himself. We'll deal with the two in our text in Genesis as I organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, Jesus will sometimes hide himself to elicit your hospitality. And number two, Jesus will sometimes show himself to elucidate his impossibilities. Let's talk about hospitality first in verses 1 through 8. Jesus loved to hide himself in order to elicit a response when he was on the earth. I'll give you an example before his resurrection and one after his resurrection. There, resting alone at the well, 
Jesus engaged a Samaritan woman who had come out to draw water. You remember the story. He kept his identity a secret. He spoke to her in cryptic clues about himself, saying things like, if you knew who you were talking to, you would ask and he would give you living water. Only after he told her some things that no man could have known about her did she understand that he was not merely a man. She returned to town and she told everyone, saying to them, Could this be the Christ? Many Samaritans believed in Jesus that day. After Jesus rose from the dead, he suddenly appeared with two disciples returning from Jerusalem to Emmaus. One minute they were on their own by themselves and the next minute he was walking with them. But he hid his true identity from them until they urged him to stay with them and to share a meal. When he was breaking bread, their eyes were open to know who he was, but Jesus by that time had vanished from them. You could make the point that hospitality was involved in both of those stories as well. At the well, Jesus asked the Samaritan woman to give him a drink. And so that, that giving or withholding hospitality was the basis upon which they were having their conversation. And then in Emmaus, the Lord said, I'm just going to keep walking until they pressed upon him. No, stay with us. Let, it's getting dark. Uh, you know, just come in and we'll show you hospitality. Our story in Genesis is one in which Jesus initially hides his identity and Abraham shows he and the other two men with him immense hospitality. In other words, Abraham shows hospitality to strangers and ends up entertaining angels unwittingly. That almost sounds like a Bible verse, doesn't it? Well, it is. It's Hebrews 13:2, where we read, Do not forget to entertain strangers for by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Suddenly, this showing hospitality is pretty important stuff. And so let's follow Abraham as he entertained the Lord and these two angels unwittingly. Verse 1. Then the Lord appeared to him by the terebinth trees of Mamre as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. So he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. As I said, it was the Lord and uh, angels, but to Abraham they appeared as men. And then verse 2 uh, finishes, when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground. Abraham was looking to serve. He was ready to do so. Everything behind him, so to speak, in his tent, in his household was in order so that he could sit there and if by chance someone came along, he was ready and eager to minister to them. Now, before we go on, let's realize something. When we use the word hospitality in our study today, we're not strictly talking about entertaining folks. We're not talking about having full pantries and spotless homes. There's nothing wrong with that. But entertaining isn't always done with real spiritual hospitality. And hospitality can exist even when you have very little to share. Have you ever been, uh, you know, invited someplace and um, it's just really no fun at all? Uh, I mean, you know, uh, it, it just, there, there's really a lack of hospitality. The food might be good, there might be plenty in the cupboard, the house is clean, but it's just, you know, er, there's just no fellowship and there's really no, uh, you know, nothing going on on a spiritual level. You feel like you, you're walking on eggshells and that kind of a thing. I remember years ago, I got, I, I gosh, 
elderly couple invited me over for dinner. And um, I, I'm terrible. I'm just the worst person. Please don't invite me over. But anyway, um, there's just some things I can't eat. I, I'm sorry. I just can't. Uh, I do this on the mission field, too. You know, they say you're, you know, whatever's in front of you, you're supposed to eat. Maybe if you're the first missionary that breaks into an African tribe that likes to eat grubs, that's fine. You don't want to offend people. But, you know, I mean, if, if, if they're just normal, you're in Peru, you're in Japan, wherever you're at, and you don't want to eat raw, nasty stuff, just I'm not going to do that. So I'm not that kind of missionary. And so this, this elderly couple had me over, and, and it was just, you know, first of all, they wanted us to bring our kids, but... Our kids, they were little at the times in the 80s, and they, they didn't want them to sit at the table with us. Uh, you know, they had, and so they had to watch TV, and we said, well, we don't like, you know, at that time, I don't know, if, I don't think we even had a TV. And, you know, well, my kids, my grandkids watch this show, and I go, yeah, okay, uh, we don't watch TV. So we had a big problem with the TV. And, and then I can't remember what it was, but I'm sure it involved something green that was pea-like. Uh, and, and it was this lady's favorite, famous green pea-like substance that she cooks. And uh, I just looked at it, and I, my, I started to churn and, and get, you know, the gag reflex, you know. I started getting gag reflex just looking at this stuff, you know. And I tried to be as polite as possible. I finally had to, I, I mean, I was still polite, but I said, I can't eat that. I'm not eating that. I'm sorry. And it, so that was my evening. Uh, you know, it, it, it uh, kind of went downhill from there, as you might say. So, you know, not just entertaining people isn't always hospitality. Uh, sometimes it's, you know, it's more about the host uh, and putting on a show than it is. And hospitality can exist even when you have very little to share. You ever had somebody just drop by and you say, hey, eat with us. Come on, there's plenty whether there is or not, you know, and, and it's a fun time. And so, so don't get this idea that hospitality is, is you know, well, just know what it is. For our purposes, we're using hospitality in the sense that we are willing to share what God has provided us, whether it be spiritual or material, in order to minister to a person in such a way that it will refresh their heart, which is a phrase we're going to encounter in verse 5. So hospitality is being willing to share what God has provided us, whether it's spiritual or material, in order to minister to a person in such a way that it refreshes their heart. I can do that with much, but I can do that with little. I can do it by giving something to someone, something material like food or clothing or shelter, but I can also do it by giving someone someone spiritual, by sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ or by praying with them or by laying hands on them or by weeping with them in their time of sorrow. And so verse 3, he said, My Lord, if I have now found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servant. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts. After that, you may pass by in as much as you have come to your servant. And they said, Do as you have said. I'm really not interested in foot washing. and We don't live in that kind of a culture where... Everybody wore open sandals and your feet got really filthy from, you know, not just dirt, but all the stuff that happens in the dirt in those kinds of places. Uh, and so foot washing is very important, especially when you realize that they reclined on low couches and ate. And so when you're reclining on your left arm, eating with your right arm, your feet were next to somebody. And uh, I don't even like feet, uh, but dirty feet are even worse. And so, uh, you know, it's important that feet got washed. But as far as foot washing... You know, it's not really for today. 
in terms of our culture. I will tell you something I think is fantastic. On Japan Airlines, just before you're going to land, you know what I'm going to say? The stewardess brings you a hot towel. Uh, I don't know how they get it, the perfect temperature, and you put that thing on your face, and it's like having a spa at 30,000 feet. I don't know what it is about having a hot towel on your face at the end of a long flight, but you are invigorated. Uh, it was fantastic. I, I wanted to just stay there. You know, I was buying other people's hot towels. You know, there's no price too high for that thing. So, uh, hospitality. It must have brought Jesus immense joy to have Abraham offer uh, this foot washing when Abraham thought he was still a total stranger. And here's why. Some four centuries or so later, Jesus' own disciples, knowing who he was, would refuse to wash one another's feet. Jesus then stooped to do it, to teach them what it truly means to be a servant. John chapter 13. Again, notice that the great lesson of servanthood that Jesus imparted to his disciples the night of his crucifixion was in the context of hospitality. In their case, it was withheld hospitality. Now, Abraham twice refers to himself as their servant, and he lived that out. He didn't just serve them. He wasn't on the clock. This wasn't his week on the schedule. He was a servant through and through. Uh, He was there to meet their needs. And so, verse 6, Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, Quickly, make ready three measures of fine meal, knead it, and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd, took a tender and good calf, gave it to a young man, and he hastened to prepare it. And he took butter and milk and the calf which he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree as they ate, waiting on them. Uh, Abraham had promised them what? A morsel of bread. He delivered far more than he had promised. Part of showing the mercy of hospitality is sacrificing more than a morsel. I found, too, that when folks give more than the morsel, it becomes their new minimum standard. The next time hospitality is elicited, they have an opportunity to give more than that morsel again. Uh, and, And the Lord loves to keep teaching us about giving. And of course, I mean, it's the nature of God to be generous and to be giving. God gave his only begotten son that we might have eternal life. Jesus gave everything so that we might live. And so there have to be lessons in the Christian life about giving and giving more and more and more, being willing to give all if necessary. And so uh, Abraham and man, this took a long time. I mean, I don't know about you, but uh, this no microwaves. You realize there were no microwaves in that day. Uh, and so they're out there butchering and, you know, all this takes time. Uh, and, and so uh, there's a lot of hospitality going on in this tent. Abraham literally entertained Jesus and angels. We may entertain angels unawares. I think that's kind of cool. Uh, I don't know that I've ever really thought that I entertained an angel. Uh, back in the day when you picked up hitchhikers, uh, not in Corcoran, by the way, but when you did that, I love that sign. That's my favorite view of the valley. When you're going down Highway uh, 43 and uh, right outside of Corcoran, it says, don't pick up hitchhikers. I think that's tremendous uh, right there near Corcoran State Prison. Uh, but anyway, uh, so, you're, you know, um, in the day you used to pick up hitchhikers. When they get out of the car, you'd always look for feathers in the back seat, you know trying to see if they had angels' wings, get it? It's just it's kind of a joke, you know. But uh, uh, 
You may have entertained angels unawares. Who knows? But what is perhaps even more amazing than actually entertaining Jesus or angels is the biblical fact that the way you treat others is seen by Jesus as exactly how you would and therefore how you do treat him. In the famous passage at the end of Matthew 25, Jesus talked about the treatment of those who were hungry, thirsty, naked, strangers, sick, and in prison. It's the passage where the Lord divides non-believers from believers at his second coming. Now, I understand the context of that passage. It's the great tribulation. And, uh, you know, in, in many ways, he's talking about how people treated the nation of Israel. But I think by extension, we can get the Lord's heart for how he understands uh, our treatment of people in general. To those who fail to show mercy and hospitality, Jesus will say, depart from me, you cursed into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. To those who show mercy and hospitality, Jesus will say, Come you, blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. On what does Jesus base his judgment and invite some into the kingdom of heaven on earth while others go to Hades to await uh, their final punishment? Well, in Matthew 25, verses 40 and 45, he says this, And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. And then he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And so Jesus says, you did it to me or you did not do it to me. He considers your behavior towards others as if you were dealing directly with him. They are his proxy, as it were. Jesus, uh, maybe you'll entertain an angel. Uh, maybe you won't, but it doesn't matter because Jesus says the way you treat everybody is reflecting how you would treat me and how you do treat me. Now, there are many exhortations in the New Testament to practice hospitality. How exactly we do this is left open-ended. Albert Barnes writes and he says, to what extent this is to be done is one of those questions which are to be left to every man's conscience and views of duty. No rule can be given on this subject. Many men have not the means to be extensively hospitable and many are not placed in situations that require it often. No rules could be given that should be applicable to all cases and hence the Bible has left the general direction, has furnished examples where it was exercised, has recommended it to mankind and then has left every man to act on the rule as he will answer it to God. And so that's the, the deal this morning. God says, uh, you might someday entertain angels. You don't know. But even if you don't, uh, the way you treat others is the way you treat me. You may not see it that way, but that's the way the Lord sees it. Uh, and so whatever our situation, uh, we are going to have opportunities in our life to share the mercy of hospitality with people. Uh, and, and the Lord is going to either be refreshed, his heart's going to be refreshed, or it isn't. 
And, and no one can tell us exactly how to do that or, you know, uh, you, you, there's no sum of money, there's no particular meal, there's no, it, it's up to us to try to figure that out and to have a handle on that. One of the things we do here at the church, um, it, you know, obviously you're a church and so uh, people come to you for, for help and for needs, people in the body, people outside of the body. As you know, for many years we've had what we call the Deacon's Fund. Uh, folks donate to that. We take part of the general offering and we give to that so that we have funds to help folks. And uh, the normal program is for our one or more of our deacons to interface with those individuals. And the goal is to bring them to, the gospel, to Jesus Christ through the gospel of Jesus Christ or to get them into the life of the church. But, you know, we help people. And, and uh, over the years, I'm just going to throw out a number. It doesn't really have a context for you. I know that, it, you know, it's hard to, to really say if this is a lot or a little. Uh, but I thought it'd be interesting to go back uh, and see through our deacons fund what we've done over the years. And so uh, our uh, computer records go back to 1995 uh, because that's when the computer was invented. Uh, you know, that's when we started being able to put records on computer. Uh, so we've been here since 85. So we've got 10 years that are in boxes upstairs. But from 1995 to the present time, uh, and again, context would be important. I, I, I can't really break down everything, whether it was rent or food or whatever it was. But during that time, we have spent or uh, given out, I would say, through our deacons fund, uh, a, a little over $165,000, uh, which is about $1,000 a month is what we do towards benevolence. Now, I don't know if that's good or bad. I'm, I'm pretty excited. I think, you know, just the number itself seems... Cool, you know, but uh, still, you know, we need to be open to the fact that, hey, what does the Lord really want us to be doing in the area of benevolence, in the area of helping people? Gino's working on a plan, uh, you know, we've been doing stuff, or some of the guys in the fellowship have been doing stuff with the homeless here in Hanford, and we're working on a plan to kind of expand that in a way that would involve the whole body. But, uh, and, and it's generally been on our heart uh, recently to, to think about the poor in our area. Uh, in our county and in Hanford. It's easy to just let the, the government deal with folks. And, and, but I don't know if you realize it or not, but the government doesn't usually share the gospel with people. Uh, I, I, in fact, I think they're not supposed to. And so our goal, of course, is to show the ultimate hospitality by inviting people to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. So I'm just saying we, we do some stuff, as, and this is as a body, so you know, it's, all, it, it's your fruit. So one of these days you know, we get to see the Lord He's going to say, hey, you, you gave me food, and, and you're going to say, when did I do that? And you say, well, when you put two cents into the, you know, well, that's all you need, really. And uh, you put your two cents in or your $20,000, whatever it is, part of that went to feed the poor. And so uh, I'm excited about it, but I, I don't want to rest on that because, as I said earlier, if that's our morsel, then God wants us to continue to give beyond that morsel. And so Jesus, in a very real sense, hides himself in every encounter to elicit from us the mercy of showing hospitality. And the way we treat others, the mercy we either show or withhold, it reveals the character of our love for Jesus. Now, in verses 9 through 15, Jesus will show himself. The Lord was on a mission to announce the birth of Isaac. He showed himself to Abraham and Sarah and gave them the good news. And they said to him, verse 9, where is Sarah, your wife? And so he said, she's in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. 
Sarah was listening, i.e. eavesdropping, in the tent door, which was behind him. According to the time of life refers to a normal nine-month pregnancy, it would be a miracle for a 99-year-old man and an 89-year-old woman to conceive, but the pregnancy would otherwise be natural in every sense. Verse 11, now Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age, and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. To remove any doubt about the miraculous nature of the conception, we're told that Sarah had already gone through the change of life. What the Lord was declaring was therefore physically impossible. He was going to bring a child from a dead womb. Verse 12, therefore Sarah laughed within herself saying, after I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And you remember Abraham had laughed when the Lord told him in chapter 17 that Sarah would get pregnant. Now Sarah laughed. Jesus was cracking them up with his promises. Every time he would say something, they were laughing. Have the Lord's promises ever cracked you up? Or are we always so rigid that there's no room to see that the Lord has a sense of humor? Uh, Hey, really, all I have to do is look at you. All you have to do is look at me to know that God has a sense of humor. Because he chose us and he uses us. uh, And it's crazy. When you think about that, Uh, me, you, uh, and if you start thinking, well, no, I I can see where he would use me because of my my natural talent and beauty and education and eloquence and all that. Well, then you're 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 probably not being used by the Lord Then you might think you are. But uh, all you're doing is using what you, uh, you know, got from birth and and the Lord wants to do so much more. And so God is using us Uh, now. Verse 13, the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh saying, surely I shall bear a child since I am old? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it saying, I didn't laugh for she was afraid. And he said, oh yeah, you did. Commentators are generally hard on Sarah for both laughing in her heart and then denying it. Of course, most of the commentators are men. Uh, Just throw that out there to you ladies. I cut her some slack just short of her 90th birthday. She's told she will get pregnant and deliver a son. I don't know about you, but I'd cry. But initially she laughed. Besides, she is in the hall of faith. And in Hebrews 11:11 we read, By faith, Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed. And she bore a child when she was past age because she judged him faithful who had promised. And so... Uh, If the New Testament commentary on the Old Testament is true, and it is, we want to be careful what we say about Sarah because at some point she had faith to believe in God's promise. Now, she got busted and her first response was to deny it. It's not the most spiritual thing to do, but after all, as I said, it's a unique situation. It's very, you know, very rare that the Lord comes to you at age 89 and says, guess what? Your kid's coming. Uh, Now, for the Lord's part, he doesn't really rebuke her. He doesn't withdraw his promise or strike her mute or anything. He just says, yeah, you laughed. Of course you laughed. And, And so what I get from this is that if and when we are faithless in the face of God's promises, he remains faithful. So God said, I'm going to, you know, you're going to be pregnant. You're going to have a child. Abraham laughs, Sarah laughs, and he goes, yeah, we'll see who's laughing later, uh, because it's going to happen, and you can laugh all you want. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Well, the answer is, of course, no. Now, that doesn't mean that all the things we want the Lord to do are going to come to pass. The context is that God had promised something, and even though it was humanly impossible, 
it was not too hard for him. If you are a believer, you've already experienced God doing what is humanly impossible. He has acted in human history in order to save you for eternity. Salvation is humanly impossible. The forgiveness of your sins is humanly impossible. But what is impossible for you is possible for God. Jesus came as a man, God in human flesh, so that whosoever will believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And so we've seen God in our own lives. If you're a Christian, he's done the impossible. Religion is man's attempt to save himself. And it's an utter and abject failure. And if you really understand the human condition, the fall in the Garden of Eden, you know that it is impossible to be saved apart from the direct intervention of God who said with with man this is not possible but with God all things are possible and he makes his salvation available free uh, through uh, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ what other promises of God's might you secretly be laughing at what other promises of God have you abandoned even because they seem Impossible. So there's a lot of possibilities here for us to, to kind of have a devotional thoughts about. There may be some promises in the Word of God that you, you if you're honest, you think, well, I, I, I've, uh, I've abandoned them. You know, I, I'm too old for them to come true. I don't have enough money. I don't have enough wherewithal, whatever it is. You know, maybe it was a dream I had when I was a kid or, or later on. But not. And there may be things that you have abandoned. Uh, Abraham and Sarah, in a sense, they had... I mean, they didn't know how God was going to work this out. They were always trying to work it out themselves. God had promised them a child years ago and nothing was happening. And essentially, they had abandoned this idea. And that's why it sounded so funny to them. Maybe God has promised you something and he's still going to do it. Or just there's a promise in God's word and you just really don't believe it. You're laughing at it. Uh, Let the Lord show you. Because the Lord wants to show himself to you and to elucidate the impossible. Whether you're young or old, strong or infirm, even when you present yourself to be somewhat faithless, Jesus remains faithful to bring to pass the impossible. Adam Clark, in his commentary, writes this. He says, it was to correct Sarah's unbelief and to strengthen her faith that God spoke these most important words. Words which state that where human wisdom, prudence and energy fall and where nature herself ceases to be an agent... Though lack of energy to act or laws to direct and regulate energy, there also God has full sway and by his own omnific power works all things after the counsel of his own will. Is there an effect to be produced? God can produce it as well without as with means. He produced nature, the whole system of causes and effects, when in the whole compass of his own eternity there was neither means nor being. He spake and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. How great and wonderful is God. And so maybe you think you're in some kind of a, an impossible situation today. Uh, with God, all things are possible. You know that saying, I'm not laughing at you, I'm laughing with you. Abraham and now Sarah were laughing at the Lord, but the Lord would graciously change their hearts to be laughing with Him. Their laughter of fear... And disbelief was going to give way to peals of joy at the birth of Isaac, whose name, by the way, you remember, means what? Laughter. That's what that name means. And so they laughed all the way through. 
Uh, and when he was born, they named him Laughter, and I think that's precious. Now, the Lord is probably trying to show himself to you in some area of your life that seems for one reason or another impossible. Laugh with him, not at him, because he can do it. And then go out and treat others with merciful hospitality, knowing that the way you treat them is received by Jesus as if you were doing it directly to him. Amen. All right, let's pray together.